0: What's going on guys? It's your man with the Plan Samuel Plan coming back at you once again with another brand new instalment of Sports Entertainment Is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Welcome to the show folks. Last week on SEID, I of course covered the Fast Lane Alternative Pre-Show, a tradition here on Sports Entertainment is Dead. Uh, as I say, with all of those alternative pre-shows, of course, because I record these shows usually on a Tuesday night, they are done before SmackDown Live airs, the cards are subject to change after I preview them. Of course, I couldn't possibly have predicted that the card would change quite as much as it did, seemingly being half-booked after the show itself had started, but I guess that's the the world we now live in, as WWE fans, unfortunately. Fastlane itself was, you know... Not all that great a show, uh, as much as I tried to amp myself up with the alternative pre show last week and amp you guys up as well, I hope to some degree. Uh, and of course, you can still go and check that show out, outdated as it is now, on demand at Blog Talk Radio or at Lords as well as all the great shows that we air here at Lords of Pain Radio every single day of the week, from The Right Side of the Pond on Fridays to Kingdom of Honor on Mondays and everything in between. Doc says on Sundays, and all about All Elite Wrestling on Saturdays, myself on Wednesdays, One Nation Radio, and uh, the Global Revolution guys on Tuesdays, and of course the Damn Implications with his Perfect 10 podcast on Thursdays. I know that was a weird way of of plugging the shows, Uh, but nonetheless you can uh, be sure to go and check all of those great shows out on demand, including Aftershock, which aired... Uh, Straight after Fastlane. My understanding is we're having some issues uploading the audio for the post-Fastlane Aftershock. Steve and I are looking into that, so bear with us. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to get that available for you. Nonetheless, uh, events move fast in... well, I say that. Events move in WWE. And of course we're now only four weeks away from WrestleMania. And that means that this week it is, of course, the Fastlane Performance Art Review. Anybody who's maybe tuning into the show for the first time or listening to their first performance art review know that these are basically reviews of me looking at the show from a slightly different lens, from a performance art lens, because of course sports entertainment is dead. I usually pick out two or three, I think, of the, the, the top talking points or the best matches of the night, and that's what I've done this week. Picked out the three matches that I most enjoyed. Now, I'm sort of currently stealing myself for the fact that I'm going to have to sit here and talk about the Shields match against Corbin, Lashley and McIntyre. Uh, and I say steal myself because I've seen it a few times now and, and it's uh, after Monday Night Raw in particular and news coming out that Ambrose is still set to leave and it might be the last that we saw of him getting picked apart by McIntyre this last week. Honestly, it all feels a little raw and emotional right now. So we'll see how I get on with that. But we're going to get that to that in a little while. First of all... I want to talk about a match that kind of, first of all, it was nice to see it make the main card of the pay-per-view. But second of all, I would class as a huge overachiever. I'm not talking about the Shane McMahon The Miz versus Uso SmackDown Live Tag Team Championship match. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm certainly not talking about Asuka versus Mandy Rose or the US title Fatal 4-Way or any of the more lackluster elements of the undercard. So if you do want to catch my thoughts on some of those, go and check out my first reaction column that I posted on Monday shortly after the pay-per-view. Still available to read on Pain.net. Now I want to talk about the triple threat match for the, uh, the triple threat tag team match for the Monday Night Raw Tag Team Championships. The Revival defending against Chad Gable and Bobby Roode, who I like to call Gable and Glory after, of course, power and glory of the early 90s. Uh, And a team that I've taken to liking to call Shock and Awe. uh, Alistair Black and Ricochet because I feel like they've actually gelled into something of a nice team and they have a certain shock and awe about their tactics in the ring the shock of Alistair Black's strikes and the awe of Ricochet's aerial offence and in fact it's the sort of the unexpected um, and to be fair you know some people might say it's not that unexpected considering the talent of Alistair Black and Ricochet but I would say it's unexpected To see them have become as effective a unit as they've become. There's something that's very complimentary about their two ring games, and I'm very much enjoying them, enjoying watching them uh, develop as a tag team. And I felt that that really was at the heart of the best reading on this Monday Night Raw tag team match. Obviously, Alistair Black. And Ricochet get a very early advantage. Uh, their their early upper hand is sort of punctuated then with their what's become their sort of their signature pose, which is the two of them doing their signature poses together. Alistair Black back flipping into a cross legged sit down and Ricochet into the one knee, you know, into taking the knee and, and looking up dramatically. Uh, and it was a really effective moment. It's always a really effective moment, and it's a moment that demonstrated <clears> their <throat> unexpected uh, strength. As a team, and indeed Alistair Black and Ricochet felt like throughout the course of the narrative of this match often seemed to hold uh, an offensive advantage. Not to the point where the other teams didn't get their licks in, indeed Ricochet plays the face in peril for quite some time early on, but it was enough to position them as what felt like still the breakout stars and obviously that was emphasized after the fact with some post-match shenanigans and I thought as obvious as an approach to the narrative as that was it was pretty effective because it's playing into the story that's developing around these two that is this notion that they are the NXT upstarts that's how commentary keep referring to them and I like that because there is a sense of rebelliousness to the two of them there is a sense of the alternative still to the two of them so I think it works they're sort of the counter-cultural presence in the tag team division not least for because they aren't a traditional tag team and they're pursuing champions who are very much a traditional tag team whose ring game is inspired by tradition whose passion is inspired by tradition so there's a nice little interpretation to be had there but also it's worth noting that Gable and Gloria are in this thing as well And their story has been very similar. Obviously, they come from an NXT background. And while that didn't inform their coming together as a team, they were nonetheless a pair of single stars who were sort of put together as a makeshift tag team and slowly and gradually evolved into a more formal version of what they started out at now they have matching ring attire they share an entrance the story started out with Bobby Roode mentoring Chad Gable to show some more personality a kind of stilted WWE attempt at a storyline but it's transitioned nicely into what's become a fabulous tag team to watch not least of all because I think their finish the moonsault neckbreaker combination is just tremendous I I absolutely adore that thing And so what you sort of inadvertently ended up with with this Raw Tag Team title match as a result was something of a hymn to the artistry of tag team wrestling, the lost artistry of tag team wrestling, at least in WWE. Because you had these two teams challenging for the championships who didn't start out as teams, but have come together and evolved as teams. And their story has been how they've adapted to tag team wrestling, how they've been able to become... uh, what's the word I'm looking for formidable tag teams in their own rights to the point where revival really the way that the match was structured made the revivals victory look almost like they looked out a little bit. And I really liked that. I mean, that's something that's kind of been a revival trademark for many of their stories. Actually, they obviously often devolve into chaos in a almost shield like manner. And, then in the in the midst of that chaos are able to always find a way to hit the shatter machine or to roll their opponent up and to get that pinfall victory, and that's exactly what happened here. The match itself was in some ways nothing to really shout home about, shout home about, write home about, um, because it it's essentially just took a very traditional tag team wrestling structure and adapted it for its own subgenre, which is the face in peril. Um, Ricochet played the face in peril earlier until Asta Black got the hard tag and very soon thereafter it all turned into the kind of frenetic frenzy that we're now used to seeing from the very best tag team matches thanks to the, the, I'd say, the legacy of the Shield and more recently, obviously, the heavy influence of the Revival. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. In fact, as I say, I really liked the match. I thought it worked really well and as it really started to to, to develop, and as the action really started to break down, uh, it it really became a surprise hit for me. But it does mean that in adapting what was still a very uh, classical structure, it meant that it wasn't able to reach the very best kinds of triple threat tag team matches that we've seen in the annals of WWE, and the one that springs most immediately to mind is the long-forgotten triple threat tag team match between Reigns and Rollins, The Usos, and The Rhodes Brothers from Hell in a Cell 2013, which did some very interesting stuff, as you might expect, from uh, a deliberately subversive genre wrestler like Rollins in particular. So not quite the best of its kind, but very good nonetheless. There were a number of very almost balletic sequences in there. The one that stands most to mind is the moment where Chad Gable... Nailed Alistair Black with a with a a brilliantly uh, put together German suplex. The way that Alistair kind of scrapped and and clawed and and sort of frantically threw his arms about in the air as, as he was lifted up was was a uh, compelling visual. But Chad nails the German on on Black. Dash Wilder comes off the top rope and nails Chad Gable with a frog splash, and then Ricochet comes off the top rope and nails Dash Wilder with a something, a ricochet move, let's call it. <laughs> I don't know. Don't know exactly what it was, but um and it just it you know, it threaded together fluidly, it threaded together with a sense of immediacy and and, and uh uh organic Sort of natural visuals. It didn't feel jilted or forced. It didn't feel like there were people standing around or waiting around for someone to hit a move, which can often happen these days. So it, it worked really nicely, and that's just one example. But I also not only were those sequences the standout of this match. What I also really loved was that when it got frenetic, there was this wonderful sense of shared space that came to the fore, and uh, uh, a clear idea of uh, tactical awareness, let's say, in the minds of the competitors. I'll give you an example to demonstrate what I m- mean. There's, there was that moment where the action had degraded. There'd been a bunch of stuff. Ricochet nailed the Hurricane Rana and of the revival to the whole uh, assembled uh, uh, roll call of the match to the outside. And there were bodies everywhere. And Ricochet was in the ring. And then he saw... From uh, across the ring, uh, sort of beyond the uh, beyond the opposing corner, uh, Bobby Roode kind of milling around on the outside. So Ricochet charges across the ring as Chad Gable gets on the ring apron. Chad tags himself in as Ricochet launches himself over the corner to take out the Bobby Roode he'd seen lingering from a distance. It's a very simple moment. Chad sort of gives Ricochet a, a, a an astounded look and then goes to finish off the revival in the ring. It's a it's a very simple moment, but it. Again, it demonstrated a sense of technical awareness, a great sense of, of shared space that Ricochet had spotted Bobby Roode from across the ring and decided it was more important to take him out than to capitalise on trying to get a pinfall. And you know, it's it's simple little moments like that that I think often and certainly the ones that strike you enough to want to pass comment on them, that help make good matches good. You know, it's it's just those those nice sequences those nice little touches that you don't regularly see. That obviously played into the stipulation that it was triple threat and, and Chad tagging himself in, I mean, that was another kind of uh watermark of this entire match. You know, the the tags all worked very well, I thought. The idea that I mean, triple threat tag team matches are a difficult beast to pull off in the first place, but the idea that People were opportunistically tagging in, I think exclusively. I think pretty much 100% of the time, unless it was their own partner. And that that really worked as well. So I think to collectively, the three teams did a very good job in coming together and, and making a difficult subgenre work very well. Uh, and in a way that, like I said, because of the sort of the underlying... First of all, the underlying... Symmetry in the stories of Gable and Glory becoming a team and now Ricochet and Alistair Black becoming a team and the contrast of those stories with the story of the revival, which is heavily rooted in tradition, sort of combining in the, the freneticism of modern tag wrestling uh, with a traditional structure, it really turned out to be a, a, a nice hymn, as I said earlier to the platform of tag team wrestling, to the artistry of tag team wrestling, to what tag team wrestling can and should be allowed to achieve. Uh, and certainly when you look across WWE's sort of entire tag roster, you realize they've got more than enough to be able to almost, to, to frankly, to rival the golden age of tag wrestling in the late 1980s. They just need to unify the divisions like they have with the women's. I see no reason why they can't. And just give tag team matches, you know, the opportunity to have feature length presentations on, on big stages. Uh, just today, in fact, a news article came out saying that Vince McMahon doesn't see tag team wrestling as a big enough attraction for WrestleMania, which really doesn't surprise, but manages to disappoint all at the same time. So I thought, it, you know, it was nice to see this this match make the main card. It was nice to see Revival get their moment on the main card. And it was nice to see tag team wrestling get that spotlight um, for, for you know, a good 15 minutes as well. I really liked it. I think it's the kind of match that stands up really well to a replay. Uh, and certainly it's going to be hard for me to come across a tag team match that I think will top this when it comes to naming my favorite tag match of March in my March retrospective at the end of the month. But we'll see, you know, because NXT UK has a burgeoning tag scene at the minute. NXT has the Dusty Rhodes Classic going on. If you're a fan of tag team wrestling, then I think this month's going to be a good month for you. But that was only one of my three favorite matches of the night. The other one was the tri- another triple threat match, oddly enough. The WWE Championship triple threat match, of course, wrestled between the defending champion Daniel Bryan, the challenger Kevin Owens, and the impromptu challenger of Mustafa Ali. Now, before we get into the actual match itself, obviously it's worth saying that I think there were issues with how this match came into existence. Obviously Kofi Kingston right now is the hot property. Well actually let me start by saying that for a full breakdown of these thoughts, uh keep your eyes peeled for when we manage to get Aftershock uploaded properly because I sort of expand on them in full there. We'll probably touch on them a bit more on the right side of the pond this Friday as well so you can tune into that show. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cover it too much here, but I will say that obviously Kofi Kingston is the hot property and essentially my thoughts boil down to I think it was an error in WWE's judgment to have booked the Kofi Kofi Kingston match and then done a U-turn halfway through building towards it and then done another U-turn on the night. Because what's resulted is they had only two weeks to build up the match between Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens that otherwise would have had four because the rumor was that it was going to happen at WrestleMania. And I think that means that Kevin Owens now has... Uh, been put in the unenviable position that he's come back after a long time with something of a, of a rejuvenation of character, but already he's kind of ended up stalling and falling flat because the Kofi Kingston issue has conflated things. Uh, I'm not blaming Kofi for that. I'm blaming WWE for, for that. So I think that was one error in judgment. And then the other error in judgment was then rushing to force Ali into this particular match when I think it probably would have been much better and wiser and easier to hold off on giving Ali his title shot until after WrestleMania at this point, and spent the time heading in and through WrestleMania, letting Ali rebuild some of the momentum that he'd garnered. I don't like to use that word, but it seems apropos here. since he debuted on on SmackDown Live and and let people get back behind them again after the Kofi story had been told. So I think there were issues with the existence of this match and that that became prevalent in the fact that the audience were attempting to rebel even though the hearts weren't really in it uh, from the very beginning. But what was interesting is that that kind of accidentally made this, in some ways, the perfect stage for Ali's, particularly Ali's, first WWE Championship match on pay-per-view because, of course, Mustafa Ali got to this point by wrestling in front of disinterested crowds who didn't want to watch him and winning them over. And here he was, first WWE title match on a WWE main roster pay-per-view, having to wrestle in front of a crowd that seemingly didn't want to watch him and, by the end of it, winning them over. It's just, it just seems very, very appropriate, doesn't it? Um, And, of course you know, it's through the efficacy and the dedication of his performance, but also the performances of Brian and Owens that they did win over the crowd. We've seen other performers like Dolph Ziggler panic at times when the crowd begins to turn on them. And I thought it was a testament to the ability, mentality, and skill of the three men involved that they didn't let it phase them, that they got on, they busied themselves with telling the story they were there to tell. They told it very well. And by the end of the match, you know, Despite there still being the odd rebellious spurt, ultimately the crowd were very, very much invested and involved in what was going on. So kudos to the three men uh, for that. Uh, I think it's worth saying that structurally as a triple threat match, uh, it was obvious uh, in the sense that it didn't really break new ground. There was that cycle cycling in and out of at least one competitor. Um, and while they they it was an inversion of the trope they did ultimately start out and revisit a number of times the idea of two men teaming up against the other in this case owens and ali teaming up against brian usually of course in a triple threat environment you see the two heels team up so it is a nice inversion of that um and to be fair you know that that is intermittent largely the match ignored the trope um but those kind of visitations of that that predictable trope as well as the obvious structure meant that this is a triple threat match that didn't do anything particularly brave. That this was essentially a piece of genre work that adhered strictly to the established typical genre tropes, but did it very well. Did it fluidly. uh, Did it uh, without distraction. uh, Worked tightly. And that that resulted in if not an outstandingly memorable piece of work, uh, an admirably effective one, in which the, the joints were barely visible. And what I mean by that basically is what I said a few moments ago that it flowed beautifully from, from set piece to set piece. It felt breathless when you rewatch it. Obviously, I've, I've been able to actually watch this show twice before, do, before doing SEID this week. And what struck me the second time that I revisited that I visited this triple threat match was that it feels very breathless. It feels like it just keeps going and going and going. It's relentless in the way that the action unfolds, much to its credit, and it never really slows down. So um, I think the fact that it clocks in at less than 20 minutes helps a lot as well. It didn't go for the kind of the deliberate... Frantic style of like WrestleMania 22's triple threat match that obviously had even less time to work with, it was still composed. It knew exactly how to maximize the minutes. It was a very admirable piece of work, and and like I said, you know, it bears it bears repeating, a testament to the skills of the three men involved. I thought that it was very clear, if it wasn't already, that the three men involved in this match were world class talents because of how brilliantly and professionally and almost effortlessly this match became one of the best of the night and the best triple threat match we've seen in a while actually um, traditionalist as it may have been there were a lot of character there was a lot of character depth to it as well um, I think on all three fronts to a certain degree at least first of all it was uh, a different Kevin Owens a markedly different Kevin Owens that we were seeing um, because the you may remember that I sort of touched on this briefly last week in my alternative pre-show. But Kevin Owens traditionally postures a lot during his matches. He trash talks a lot and it's because he wants to position himself as being better at whatever his opponent is known for being. Because that way he delegitimizes his opponent and he puts himself in in a position to make more money to better provide for his family. And that motivation is still there. We've seen this new Kevin Owens talk about his family a lot. We saw obviously the videos with his family and whatnot. So the character at his core remains unchanged. Uh, what informs his motivation remains unchanged. Uh, but it, it, you know, there was none of that posturing there. There was none of that attempting to make himself look better at being whatever his opponent is. This was a focused, deliberate, uh, and uh, a professional's not the right word, but it was a it was a, a Kevin Owens whose whose head was in the game, in the competitive game you know he was he was focused on the competition and on winning the match more than he was on proving himself to be better than his opponents it's a very subtle difference but i think it's also a very important one to make particularly for his character so it's it really is a shame that that because of the way that wwe produced this match and and wrote it and put put it together at the last minute because of the kofi thing uh, it's a shame that it feels like owens's character changes kind of already lost any any sense of forward motion. Um, But make no mistake, I thought it was a very, very good character performance from Owens who presented a version of himself that was a changed man on the surface, though unchanged underneath, um, because it means that you've got a bit of character development there that isn't overbearing and done in a very obvious and awkward way that WWE tend to these days. So I really actually liked that a lot. It's also worth saying that this was a tremendous story for Mustafa Ali as well, if annoyingly a story that WWE seemed to not really want to capitalize on all that much. Uh, And indeed it will remain something of a perennial frustration as a major Ali fan that his narrative didn't get to take center stage here. When you consider that a year ago Ali was fighting on a network exclusive program that nobody watched, That nobody was interested in watching just to get on the kickoff show of WrestleMania and a year later he's wrestling in a WWE Championship match on a main roster pay-per-view with every in-universe opportunity to walk into WrestleMania as the defending world champion. That's an incredible journey to have been on and it's annoying to me. That again, because of WWE rushing it, because of them not having the patience to say, we'll put that on the back burner for another day, when it becomes opportunistic to do it, they've instead essentially given it away for free for nothing in return. Um, but there's there's a contrast uh, between Owens, Ali and Brian as well. I mean, Bryan, it, you know, what can you say about Daniel Bryan at this point? It was a typically outstanding performance from him. Exactly what you would expect from a Daniel Bryan on career form. But what I really liked about this is that you had a Daniel Bryan who proclaims himself to be fighting for the world. You have a Mustafa Ali who proclaims to be fighting for the marginalized in society. And you have a Kevin Owens who proclaims to be fighting simply for his family. Three very different motivations, three def- very different world views that I'm sure there's 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 a deeper interpretation of this match to be had uh, in the fact that those three characters have those three different world views. Unfortunately, I haven't had the time to really delve into that, but it's maybe something that I'll look forward to doing in the future all the same. So a very nice, interesting contrast there. And finally, I thought what was nice about this WWE title match, and again in, in tribute to Ali, is that it felt very 205 Live. The action seemed to be almost exclusively superlative to what we normally get. You had, you know, uh, mo- splashes being done off the top on the ring edge. You had a, a, pow- pow- uh, a pop-up power bomb onto the ring apron. You had a D- tornado DDT to the outside. You had Ali falling from the top rope and hitting the ring barrier. You had all this superlative stuff going on that is very much the sphere. That 205 Live has managed to to garner its infamy for operating in almost exclusively. So again, another fitting sort of attribute to this match, considering particularly that it's Ali's first um, first WWE main roster title match on pay per view. Um, other than Corey Graves basically sitting at his his announce table doing his his special Corey Graves thing of basically telling a story that nobody else is watching. Are talking about Ali being psyched, potentially psyched out by a hostile crowd, despite the fact that Ali got to this point by performing in front of disinterested crowds, fighting against their their um, hostility. Um, you know, especially because Ali takes a lot of the hardest offense here, and and the, I mean to to the match's credit, it almost imperceptibly leans into becoming a typical alley underdog story by the time it concludes but other than that contradiction in terms of the presentation I thought all round it was a very very good triple threat match it was a very very good WWE championship match and it was one of the absolute highlights of the the pay-per-view and one of the absolute highlights of the year so far in a year that has been at best characterised as a panicky WWE. So, bravo to all three, frustrating as it is that it perhaps didn't get the focused attention that it deserved because of the lingering Kofi Kingston issue that WWE have um, inadequately addressed. Uh, That aside, I thought, very well done from all three men involved and a very intriguing match with some very intriguing aspects to it. Okay, well that leaves just the Shield reunion. I'm going to take a deep breath. Uh, While I play some adverts for you and hopefully I'll be able to get myself psychologically in a healthy place where I could sit and talk about the conclusion to one of the most emotively powerful stories I think we've ever seen in WWE. So take you to some adverts right now and then I'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back guys, thanks for sticking with me. Okay now comes the unenviable task ahead of me. I have to talk about uh, the end of the shield or the perceivable end of the shield. It's worth noting, of course, that there's every chance yet that Dean somehow changes his mind and stays with the company. There are those who still believe this to be work. I don't think it is, though it was interesting that they have been making a very conscious acknowledgement that Ambrose is leaving. First of all, The background to this match that saw Roman come back and basically say to Seth, look, do me a favor, make amends with Dean. He's not going to be around. You know, this whole leukemia scare means that none of us could be sure how long we're going to be around. Let's have the Shield have one last ride together into the sunset. I thought it made perfect sense. I don't think anything felt rushed. And the reason for that is... A, uh, a little intelligent, uncharacteristically intelligent foresight from WWE by laying the seeds for this already with Dean and Rollins having had a number of encounters on Monday Night Raw in recent weeks that show uh, sort of borderline repentant Dean Ambrose. But a Dean Ambrose who, you know, his betrayal of Seth and his betrayal of The Shield uh, basically amounted to his belief that it had made him weaker. That he was better on his own. Since he's been on his own, he's had a lot of losses. Those losses have accrued up and that's going to give him cause to, um, to rethink what he did and to rethink why he did it and obviously what we saw was when Roman and Seth started to get beaten down, all of these emotions came flooding back to him and he did the right thing and reunited with his brothers. Yes, it was succinct. Yes, it was swiftly paced but I think it worked as beautifully as these things always do. Um what I loved as well is when the Shield made their entrance at Fastlane, there was this momentary look from Dean Ambrose to Seth. Seth sort of looks up puts his shoulder over at Dean, and Dean kind of just raises his eyebrow, shrugs his shoulders, and tilts his head. And you get this sense of look, you know, shit happens, we're both over it, let's get on with it, let's do what we do. Um and that's you know, I mean that is the story of, of the group, isn't it? You know, yes they fall out, yes they fight, yes they are intensely individuous people but ultimately, they come back together again because brothers fight and always make up. This is, I, I mean, it, there's so much to, to, to pull apart here. First of all, uh, it's worth saying that this was a singular presentation, a singular type of match, both in the history of The Shield, but also in the history of, of factions and the history of six-man tags in WWE. Um, I'm trying to read my handwriting on my notes here. Oh yes, so you might. You know, so the first thing to say here is that a lot of people um, might look at this match and say that the opposition isn't very convincing, and they'd have a point. Baron Corbin, Drew McIntyre, and Bobby Lashley are pretty cringeworthy to watch, and certainly no match for a group of as accomplished as the Shield. No matter what the announcers say, this is the group that beat Evolution, the Brothers of Destruction, the New Age Outlaws. You know, every team going. But the important thing of this story is that the focus of it was never really on the idea of McIntyre, Lashley and Corbin. They were there simply because a wrestling match needs two entities to compete, really. The story of this was the reunion of The Shield, their last hurrah, their last ride. And the story of The Shield has been all along that the only group to have been able to break The Shield has been The Shield. Essentially, this, is, this wasn't a story as much about the literal opposition facing them across the ring as it was the internal opposition they'd all overcome time and again to get to this powerfully emotive curtain call. And I thought that that was where the match and the story found its greatest emotional punch. This was their story. It wasn't McIntyre, Lashley and Corbyn's who were there to play a, a necessary bit part. And they played that part well enough, I think it's worth saying. We've had three albums from The Shield. We had the first album between 2012 and 2014, the second in 2017 and the third in 2018. This then was their greatest hits. This was them for 25 glorious minutes playing a set like Queen at Live 8. This was was 20 minutes of The Shield reminding the world of every number one they'd had, every great chorus they'd ever written every great riff they'd ever come up with and playing them one after another better than they'd ever played them before it was a relentless parade of the best of the shield a symphony of their most acclaimed work put together in this just symphonic composition i thought it was Absolutely a whirlwind of emotion and exhilaration and one of their best matches for that. There's always been something very guttural about the appeal of a Shields match, something guttural about the way that they faced off against their opposition and managed to overcome it. But like I said, even when that opposition isn't really the literal one facing them as much as it is the opposition amongst themselves and within themselves, You know, I mean, Cole at the end of the match described this as the end of an era and the beginning of another, and it was. It was the end of an era for the group. It was the end of an era for the group as individuals. We are on the verge of Seth Rollins uh, bringing to a close a character arc that's been in place since he betrayed the Shield in 2014. Brought a close to a a period in Roman Reigns' life. that saw him reach the very top of WWE, the very top of his career, uh, and have the rug pulled under him by a condition that he's been living with his entire life, and that I could say with a smile on my face, wasn't ready for the ass-kicking he gave it. And it was the end of an era for Dean Ambrose, who, as Cole said, his future remains uncertain and may very well be on his way out of the company. So not only did this bring an end to The Shield as a group, but it began the ending of The Shield as individuals as well, which just added even more powerful emotion to to what we saw play out. Like I said, it played like the greatest hits, but the match that most came to mind specifically, because those greatest hits, by the way, not just in matches, but in, in individual spots, in moments, and in narrative tangents. You know, we saw Seth leap from... A, a ludicrous height to take out his opponents. We saw Ambrose charge across the announce tables. We saw Roman, uh, you know, left alone in the ring against his opponents. Uh, we saw all, we saw the triple power bomb through the table. So it was their greatest hits, not just in the structure of the match, but also, but even primarily, in fact, in the small individual moments that each of them had. But there were also, as I've just referenced, greatest hits in the structure of the match. And the one that most came to mind was the first match they wrestled against Evolution at Extreme Rules in 2014. No, yes, Extreme Rules in 2014, where, you know, they had the brawl in the crowd uh, and, uh, you know, Roman was left, like said, alone in the ring against the opposition. Uh, and Seth did the, the big spot. It was very evocative of that Evolution match and there's something poetic in that because the evolution match the first evolution match began that period in the Shield's history when they hit their peak when they were on top of the world closer than they'd ever been and it was of course that period that saw the Shield splinter for the first time when Seth Rollins hit the two brothers of his in the back with a chair well suddenly that kind of recasts what we saw at Fastlane, because suddenly what you see at Fastlane is the second half of that rhyming couplet, the second line in that two-line poem, because at Fastlane you get that story, you get the story of the S.H.I.E.L.D. closer than they'd ever been, the brotherhood tighter than it had ever been, the group more popular than they've ever been, except for this time it had the alternative ending. It didn't end in betrayal. It ended in the unite the uniting of a hug, and there's something very powerful and very. I was going to say spiritual. I dare say that's that's you know that's that's borderline a little too pretentious, but certainly something that will stick in my mind uh, for a very very long time. Whew, uh, there's there's still more to come. Uh, there's still more to break apart here. Roman's performance was really what seemed to take center stage and you know it's 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 only fitting that it did considering what he's just overcome what he's just returned to the ring from uh and so it's fitting that he was the catalyst to reunite the shield which is fitting on a on a fictional level anyway because he's always been the steady anchor hasn't he you know he's always been the one to calm the other two down to bring the other so it's fitting that he was the one to bring the other two together and to give them some perspective and to get them out of their own heads and to get them to get over themselves to bring the 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 shield together again um but it also seemed to be particularly fitting because i don't know about you but i thought thought that not only did roman look like he hadn't missed a beat I thought that it was a performance that made him look better than he'd ever been. Whether or not this is me seeing something that isn't there, just because I'm happy to see him back, living vicariously through through this art, beautiful art form that we love, or whether it's um, <clears throat> sorry, it's it. I feel quite emotional talking about this, so I'm I bear with me, folks. But whether it was that, whether it was just because we haven't seen him for a while. Or whether it was because it was true, whether it was because he just had such an elating moment being back in that ring. Who knows what it was? But his moves seemed to have a little extra source. His work seemed to be tighter. It seemed to have more urgency to it. As good as Roman was before he left, it felt like he was even better now he was back. And that's very exciting for his future in the company throughout the rest of this year. Eventually, the match obviously comes to its close, and we get a very familiar S.H.I.E.L.D. ending. They gradually, bit by bit, take the enemy apart. They do so looking slicker, smoother, uh, and more in sync than they'd ever had. I mean, the sequence where, you know, Bobby grabs Seth to put him through the table, and Roman hits a Superman punch, which leads into the curb stomp, that sees Rollins vault over McIntyre, that sees Reigns, oh no, Corbin, sorry, that sees Reigns, Spear Corbin that sees Ambrose take McIntyre into the barrier. I mean, that entire sequence is, is just like velvet wrestling. It's beautiful to to see. Um, and eventually, you know, Lashley gets curb stomped. McIntyre gets put through the table. And there they are in the ring left with Baron Corbin orchestrating a crowd fully behind them. Seth Rollins <laughs> One more motherfucking time, he shouts, to get bleeped out. You could tell how raw an emotional moment it was for them as performers. Not as characters, but as performers. Living in that moment, feeling that electricity for the final time. They hit the triple powerbomb. They relish it. And then the bell rings, and they hug. And they embrace. And the three of them stand in the ring in their own moment that you kind of wish had come at WrestleMania. I hope we see something again like that at WrestleMania. With Seth as Universal Champion. But they hug. They exchange words. I would love to know what they were saying to each other in that moment. Uh, and then the show goes affair. With them holding their fists out. And if you watch Ambrose carefully. It seems to me that he mouths pointing at his own fist. This is what it's all about. And as that happens. What you get is an incredible curtain call. To what is my mind. In my mind. The greatest faction of all time and I could talk at length why I think that that's a statement that rings true, a lot of people will sneer at it, not least of all because the Shield are very much still a contemporary faction and it's quite, almost taboo to say something quite grandiose about a contemporary faction like that but I stand by that statement, maybe one day on SCID I'll I'll pick apart as to why that is, but I do think, and maybe even on the Pond this Friday, so check, check that out but I do think they're the greatest faction of all time Graves says, Curry Graves says very early on in the match that this is not the same shield that dominated the WWE uh, in 2012, 2013, and he's banged to rights. They go out, they're not the same shield, they're better. They go out looking better than they've ever looked in the past, uh, and, you know, I can't think of many, if any, factions or teams can boast the same. How many overstayed their welcome? How many you know went through different lineups went through different guises the success of which could be the successes of which could be debated endlessly how many stuck to the original lineup from beginning to end and only ever got better over time managed to go out on a performance that arguably was a finer performance than any other before it it was singular like i said both in the fact that it was consciously presented as a farewell as a last ride and in the fact that you got this, this, this run of greatest hits that actually didn't, that wasn't nostalgic. That was a celebration of this group that changed the course of WWE history, as Michael Cole said on the night they debuted, uh, and never have those words rung truer. You know, I don't know if there's such a thing as a human soul, and if there is, how you would define it. But I think the best you could say, is that it is the emotional truth that sits beneath the memories of the experiences that make us each who we are. And in that context, in that definition, I don't hesitate to say that the S.H.I.E.L.D. story from beginning and most notably in what could very well have been its end this last Sunday on Fastlane, was a powerful enough experience to have touched my soul and moved it. And I know that might sound a bit corny, and I know it might sound a bit pretentious, um, but, you know, I can't express to you enough how much this group changed my life as a wrestling fan and genuinely changed my life as a man I will always believe in the Shield and this Sunday was simply an expression and a demonstration as to why and possibly the best one I loved the match I will remember the match for a long time to come and I will remember this group and I genuinely hope and actually you know because I believe in the S.H.I.E.L.D., I believe it's not the last time we've seen them. Whether it's because Dean Ambrose stays, whether it's because he goes and comes back, one day we will see the Three Hands of Justice ride right again. And when we do, we will all be reminded why it is they are the greatest faction of all time. And I'm going to leave this show there. I've run a bit short this week, but honestly, I don't know what else I can say. And certainly there's nothing that can follow the S.H.I.E.L.D.'s farewell. So, if you've got any thoughts on Sports Entertainment is Dead, if you've got any thoughts about any of the uh, things that I've discussed, any of the ideas behind any of the matches I've discussed on this show, or any of the matches at Fastlane, I would love to hear them. And you could get in contact through the channels that I plug every week. You could tweet me at LOPPlan. You can uh, find me on Facebook, just look up Samuel Plan. You could drop me a comment on any of my posts on Lordsofpay.net, be it a column or a podcast advertisement. You can sign up to LOP forums and find me on there. Just let me know if you do so that if you have any issues registering, we can get that fast tracked and sorted out for you. Or if you're old school, you can email me at samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts, so do please don't, well, don't hesitate to share them, I should say. and don't forget that next week is going to be the first of a couple of feature-length editions of Sports Entertainment is Dead when I sit down and begin a exploration of four epic WrestleMania matches that collectively I like to refer to as the Tetralogy. Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker at WrestleMania 25 and 26. Next week and the week after that, The Undertaker versus Triple H at WrestleMania 27 and 28. So do check those live, watch, well not live, but real-time watch-alongs out. And until then, I will see you next week. Thanks for listening.